This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 585 and we welcome back Patrick Moffitt. We're going to talk dirty with Patrick Moffitt. A near-death experience reflects on decades of lessons learned the hard way, we're calling this one. Going to be an excellent show. And uh, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. Uh, Let's start with our newest association sponsor, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Learn more at AIHA.org. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at IAQA.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report that no one identified non-physician members of the American Association of Industrial Physicians and Surgeons, now known as ACOEM, as the original founders of the AIHA. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, May 8th, 2020, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IAQ Radio trivia question. What is the medical term for flesh-eating disease? Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. For more than 35 years, Pat Moffitt has been an environmental and industrial hygienist, general contractor, technical writer, lecturer, and instructor specializing in the assessment and oversight of property damage remediation and the environmental clearance of property losses. Pat comes to us from California. He's been a longtime uh, industry volunteer with the IICRC and RIA. I think he's currently on a couple of their committees. He also is a longtime instructor teaching people on health and safety issues, focused primarily on the water damage restoration world. Welcome to the back to the show, Patrick. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank it. I understand that it's cold where you're at. <laughs> a little bit. It's getting worse. Hey, Patrick, where are you anyway? What city in California? I'm close to Anaheim, California, the uh, okay. happiest place on earth. So, how long have you been there? It's about uh, going to be about 90 degrees, and I've been here for past 40 years. Oh, okay. Where are you from originally? Illinois, uh, a farm town. 
and uh, it's is you know it, the the farm life is is fantastic, but it's it's sure not like what it is living in the city here in California. And how how did you get involved originally in this uh, water damage restoration world? Uh, long story. I'll try to keep it short. I uh, I came from a hospital infection control background in the 1970s, and I met a couple people that uh, were in the carpet cleaning world uh, that eventually introduced me to ICRC. And from there, I realized that even working part-time, I could make more money than I could in uh, the hospital environment. And I talked to one of the hospital um, um, executives and he had a big sewage problem in his home. And uh, he went from, a, I came from the lab and he says, hey, listen, I need you to walk and swab my home. And I go, for what? And he says, we had a big sewage problem, Patrick. And, and uh, we would like you to go out and, and do it because you do more of the environmental world than you work as you work here in the hospital for infection control. And I said, okay. So that was my first job, uh, assessing his house, writing a scoop of work, uh, doing the biological clearance, uh, and of course the insurance company, which was nice insurance company, but they had no experience with sewage. The only thing that in 1979, uh, that they wanted to do was clean the carpet instead of pulling it up and getting rid of it and cleaning and sanitizing, uh, hmm. which is we did in phases and, and the poor doctor, it was out of his home for several months. And while we were taking this whole thing apart and eventually the insurance company did agree and said, hey, listen, let's do whatever's necessary. So this is right before I got involved with ICRC because I needed to know more. And when, when you were working at the hospital, what, what type of work were you doing? Was it infection control work or working in the lab? Or how, what, what were you doing there? It's a combination of, of both. I bothered the lab sufficient enough that uh, I got to know the lab manager and uh, some of the lab techs. Uh, my main thing at the hospital was uh, doing swabbing, culturing, uh, making sure that the janitorial staff were doing their job, that the ventilation systems uh, were cleaned, and we had a filter maintenance system, uh, and all that was being followed. And if there was some kind of disease or breakout in one part of a ward or part of the hospital, uh, what was the cause uh, is a what we call a nosocomial infection, which is a hospital infection that you would get there. You wouldn't get it from your own home. Um, these kinds of things. So it was uh, a full-time job and uh, it morphed into eventually using that same knowledge to what we do today in cleaning and restoration. Very interesting. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Okay, cool. All right. Um, Tell us, let's go back a little bit. Um, By the way, good morning, Cliff. Oh, good morning. Uh, let's go back a little bit to, I think, even before you were in the hospital, right? You, you were doing some medical stuff before that, correct? Um, well, yes. Uh, what qualified me to work in the hospital, I uh, was a EMT, and mm -hmm. then I was a paramedic. Right. And uh, that training where do you get it? You get it from uh, either the field or the hospital, which is uh, both in this case. And uh, knowing uh, my hospital friends after working uh, uh, in and out of hospitals part-time for several years, you get to know the management and the engineering, the practical side of the business uh, uh, administrative wise. 
And uh, you know, from that, it, they finally said, hey, we would like to hire you full-time. Cool. Um, l- let's go back to some of the things from, from the prior interview. You know, it's very coincidental that we're entering, uh, interviewing you today because two weeks from today would be the 11th anniversary of when we interviewed you for the first time and getting ready for today's interview. I went back, I listened to uh, the entire interview and I I picked out some important things from that interview that I'd like to get in because I think it, it handles a lot of the background. Um, Tell us a little bit about what OSHA would require for remediation workers. Then or today? Uh, Well, today. That's fine. All right. And well, the first thing is that uh, everything that we do um, is managed and overseen from a health and safety perspective. So OSHA is the uh, industry body from a government point of view uh, that uh, writes legislation and writes uh, um, mandates that says we should or shall um, do certain things as far as worker safety. Uh, and uh, uh, OSHA is very big in what I do. I'm also an OSHA trainer for the 30 and the 40 hour general industry. Mm-hmm. So uh, my experience with OSHA goes back um, to my early days. Uh, yeah, everything from being a paramedic and what you should or should not do. So uh, m- at least 40 years of experience in working with OSHA. As far as the cleaning and restoration industry, uh, a lot of this is taught in the uh, courses ICRC, RIA offers, IAQA offers, uh, and uh, I, I can't commend them enough to, because I've been on those committees like you have, uh, where uh, the main foundation is worker safety. That is the primary thing, and uh, uh, obviously it involves OSHA. It involves the regulations of OSHA, um, from worker protection to PPE to administrative controls to everything that we're now trying to change today to deal with the COVID or the coronavirus. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the vaccination issue. I. I with respect to restoration, um, and I maybe I'm wrong, Patrick, is this primarily vaccinations because of working with sewage or just water damage restoration in general? Uh, well, anybody that's in the construction business, tetanus is probably the biggest uh, vaccination uh, that OSHA would want, as well as your employer would want. Uh, from there, it really morphs into other kinds of jobs that you may do including water damage restoration, uh, where all of a sudden we're not always working with clean water. So there can be diseases in water, as we know. And uh, we have to, as owners and managers, um, protect our employees with making sure that the employees have the proper vaccinations. And what would they be? Um, Mainly hepatitis A and hepatitis B. Uh, Those are the uh, main two. Uh, you're depending upon your doctor and your clinic, uh, they're going to be may add diphtheria, which is quite common now, uh, into that mix. What's the difference between hepatitis A and hepatitis B? Hepatitis A has to do pretty much with the, uh, the general environment as well as just unsanitary water. Uh, the, the hepatitis B is a bloodborne. B, if you think of B as blood, 
It's usually, um, uh, it doesn't mean blood, by the way. And uh, that hepatitis B relates to uh, infections or that you can get from uh, body fluids, including blood. But it also can be found, I'm sorry, but I jumped in there, but it also can be found in sewage wastewater. Right. Let's talk about some of these sewage jobs. And one we're going to talk about in particular is your recent uh, unfortunate incident dealing with the sewage job, I believe it was. But let's, let's talk a little bit about confined spaces, because I think a lot of these projects end up being, you know, you're in a crawl space or, or, or some other what may be defined as a crawl, a confined space. Is, is, a, is a crawl space a confined space, I guess? Um, can you give us the definition of a confined space and talk a little bit about water damage restoration and sewage cleanup and confined spaces? Yeah, a confined space is any space that we don't normally live and work in. Uh, I'm sitting at a desk. But if I went inside one of my drawers on my desk to try to do some work in the backside because I'm trying to get it to some electrical component, that is a confined space with potential hazards, including electrical, if I don't handle it correctly. So even getting in a small area, um, in fact, I had a, a, a contractor friend of mine, one of his employees, was doing uh, mold remediation in a lady's kitchen. And where he had to go, you can imagine it was underneath the main sink. Uh, he took out all the contents, um, wore a very light respirator, uh, and it was like almost like an N95. And uh, he opened up the back wall because it was a lot of mold. And all of a sudden, he went into respiratory distress. And fortunately, the lady was nearby and saw it. And she called 911, and uh, he ended up in the hospital with uh, uh, respiratory inhalation of uh, toxins from the mold. And so much, so much so, it shut his immune system down, and uh, he went into convulsions. So even in a confined space, working under a kitchen cabinet is, are, is considered a confined space. Other confined spaces could be any time that you have to build a containment, and you're working inside that containment. Uh, so you have to be respective of the uh, small little environments that you may do uh, for containing environment that may have a contaminant. Okay. What about a permit confined space? A permit required confined space is, is one that has uh, known or suspected hazards that could be life-threatening. And uh, it could be toxins, could be gases, uh, potential explosive environment, uh, even working in a crawl space uh, that has uh, uh, a lot of hydrogen sulfide gas in there that's not ventilated out, uh, that all of a sudden the oxygen, the amount of available oxygen to breathe is depleted uh, and uh, it's an unsafe work environment. So in that case there, if you can't set up the proper engineering controls to ventilate out and bring in fresh air, uh, that environment uh, uh, becomes a permit required confined space. Well, a lot of general contractors and subcontractors know how to pull a permit to do construction. Uh, what's involved in permitting uh, for a confined space entry permit? Interesting. The confined space courses that you take on the internet now, more so than in person, uh, they will teach you that uh, it's really up to you to issue your own permit 
and to set and establish the safety procedures. Uh, and uh, you have to have a safety person that writes uh, the permit and also signs off on the permit at the end of the job. So a permit required confined space is your responsibility uh, as the safety person for your company to establish all the methods and procedures to uh, monitor worker safety, uh, determine what hazards are present, um, and uh, sometimes that's with a, uh, um, a gas monitor. Uh, other times it may be turning off the electricity or the gas that may be to the building um, because of potential electrical or, or other safety hazards. So it's really the employer and the, their safety people uh, that would uh, uh, establish uh, the confined space requirements. Thanks, Joe. Patrick, let's, let's talk a little bit about sewage and, and sewage remediation. And, and, and I'd like to start by kind of comparing uh, mold remediation versus sewage restoration or sewage remediation. What additional steps do you feel would be necessary when you were doing sewage remediation versus say a typical mold remediation project? From a, I think from a health and safety aspect, because as an industrial hygienist, and it's nice to see that the American Industrial Hygiene Association, which I've been a member of for about 40 years now, um, is now a member of IQ a radio. I, I'm really happy to see that. Um, but to answer your question, it's about the same safety requirements from uh, worker protection, site assessment, uh, hazard assessment, uh, to determine how would you, or how are you going to do a cleanup of a sewage remediation job versus a mold remediation job. It, it, the methods and procedures, even though most of the mold is dry material, uh, sewage is obviously a wet material, uh, but if I want to focus mainly on sewage for a second, it's, it's containing the amount of sewage that you've got and uh, determining what are you going to do with it, as well as how are you going to do it with proper worker protection. And, and to do it safely um, is, requires extraction, uh, it requires containment, absorption, uh, getting rid of the liquid waste as well as any uh, solid matter, and getting that environment safely down to a condition uh, or a state uh, where final remediation can be done. Uh, in a mold side job, it's usually uh, a non-emergency job where a sewage job is more of an emergency job, and a mold remediation job can be scheduled in many cases. And when, when, you're, when you're dealing with sewage remediation, are you commonly called in before and after a project, or is this uh, you know, typically something where you just come in at the end? Well, it's like the, the phone call I just got, and I, I put my phone on mute as we're uh, getting ready for the show. Uh, that is an environmental company. Um, they, they're very good at what they do, but because of the COVID virus, they're very limited on their available staff. Uh, I go out and sometimes assess the damage. I will work with the contractor, and if there's insurance coverage, I'll work between the insured and the insurance company to make sure that the scope of work and the safety procedures are done correctly. And uh, I will sign off at the end of the job, if it's necessary, uh, to do the pathogen clearance 
to make sure that there is no fecal coliforms, uh, for example, um, remaining, or if there is one or two fecal coliforms, such as E. coli, which is something that I'm very concerned about with my own health, um, that uh, its presence is minimal or none, and it's not a human occupant uh, health concern. That's you know, my biggest, or go ahead. Or I can say my biggest takeaway from uh, the first show was uh, your terminology and the way that you refer to uh, exposed soil found in crawl spaces. That there's a you know kind of a good way to deal with it in terms of dealing with insurance companies and so on and so forth. I'd like you to take Joe and I and the listeners uh, through that again, if you would. Uh, you're opening up a can of worms. You know that. Yeah, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, my experience with sewage and crawl spaces uh, goes back uh, a long way, in, in, including my own home as a child when uh, one of our septic systems backed up, and guess where it went? It went right underneath the house. So uh, back in those days, uh, the main ingredient that you have on a farm uh, to deal with uh, sewage that goes under a building is lime and trying to till that lime and, and into the sewage and getting rid of your solid waste matter with a rake uh, was a, a thing that I had to do at about 14 years old. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was my first experience uh, in dealing with the uh, sewage uh, in a crawl space. Mm -hmm. uh, using that experience to today um, in sharing uh, good information because I also am a litigation specialist for contractors and uh, representing them in um, uh, unfortunate lawsuits or claims that one party is unhappy with the other, uh, I get involved as uh, either, uh, uh, well, mainly the expert, uh, usually for the insurance company or the contractor. Uh, and what I try to explain is that uh, sewage in a crawl space needs to be remediated the same as it does in a building because of the pathogens uh, that are in the sewage um, just don't go away on their own. The soil doesn't normally dry on its own. It's gonna take a long time for that soil to what we call biodegrade and get back to a normal environmental state. Uh, and during this time, you can imagine the crawl spaces wet. Uh, mold likes to colonize in sewage, so you're setting that environment up if it's, if it's still humidified uh, for a massive mold problem, uh, and uh, it one problem morphs into the next. And as far as using that four-letter word, uh, soil, um, we try not to do that, uh, including if even if it's a freshwater loss. Uh, I, in in my opinion, um, yeah, I like to use the word engineered ground. And the reason why I do that is because engineered ground is a structural part of the building. Uh, that allows the buildings to stay stable, uh, both at the at the foundation level as well as well as just the normal environmental issues that that ground poses because you want to keep the ground dry, and 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 uh, uh, it is a big issue. It, it is a very big issue. Insurance companies uh, have um, limitations on soil, or they don't have soil within the policy at all. Uh, even though the adjuster is very sympathetic to the homeowner or the contractor, he knows what needs to be done. But if it's not in the policy, how can the insurance company pay for it? 
what we've done is I've listened to structural engineers and soils engineers who changed my mind of how our wording should be um, in, in dealing with sewage, and, and that is engineered ground because uh, that ground was specially prepared to support that building and maintain the uh, functionality of the building for the life of the building. And uh, so yes, it, it now becomes a component of the building, where if you're just talking about soil in general, uh, it's excluded under the policy. And so I hope that helps a little bit. Sure, that helps a lot. Patrick, let me, let me ask you this. Um, when it comes to sewage in a crawl space or on dirt or even on plastic because the plastic's typically ripped and torn anyway what is the typical response that you would recommend is it you got to remove some of that soil do you just break out the solids and then you still use lime or some other product how are you handling that nowadays I've done studies uh, there's very few people that have done studies uh, from a microbiological uh, perspective on what is considered uh, reasonable uh, because, because each project, it's very hard to, to put a blanket over uh, the subject and saying, well, this is the only way that you should do it. There, there is no one only way. Depends upon the uh, type of sewage, the amount of sewage, how long the sewage has been there. Uh, it also depends on the type of soil. Uh, the depth of the crawl space, if, uh, you know, if you can stand up in the crawl space, that's going to be a lot easier remediation than if you've only got 12 to 14 inches of crawl space and you're trying to uh, extract two to three to four inches of waste uh, water uh, that's sitting on the sewage. And, and I, I, in my classes I teach and I show this dimensionally is that if you see um, water that's on top of the soil, guess what? your soil is saturated, it can't hold any more water. So depending upon the depth and the density of the soil, uh, you're gonna find that in a lot of cases, it's the wetness or the saturation point goes down to at least a couple feet. So how do you get rid of sewage wastewater uh, that's when, within the matrix of the uh, crawl space is by first extraction and uh, second, setting up dehumidification uh, and ventilation, and then getting technicians, uh, if there is solids on the ground, um, getting rid of the, the massive amounts of solids that are there, uh, raking, sort of like when I did when I was 14, uh, mm -hmm. getting down there with a, um, uh, a small rake and start containing the, the waste, and how to do that safely. Um, if it's a small, tight, confined space, I'm gonna to talk to about my OSHA, is that from a health and safety point of view, just crawling in from the side of the building, uh, from it, that's the only entry exit, uh, and that's egress. Uh, it, that may not be a safe work process to do. Uh, in a lot of cases, I'll write it up because I'm also a general contractor, and I've got a lot of engineering experience uh, that we need to open up a safety area within the building itself, such as a bedroom, uh, or a large area where we can contain and control, get rid of the contents and uh, gain access to the waste matter area. And, and uh, I, Cliff, and you will probably remember this if, if you got experience working in crawl spaces, the sewage is never at the beginning of the crawl space. 
It's yeah. always on the other side of the building. Right, right in the middle. Right. <laughs> it's the plumbing on the uh, master bedroom bathroom that failed or the waistline uh, broke, the old cast iron uh, broke, and all of a sudden you go down there and you find out that you got a massive river uh, or a lake or stream of water that's just pooled and sitting there, and it's been there for, for weeks and months uh possibly because nobody's been in the crawl space for a long time why would they and um uh all of a sudden uh, you have months of wastewater is just saturated and congealed within that um sewage or within the soil sorry and i don't like to use the word soil too often but uh that would be a case and uh the mitigation is uh, is taking out as much uh, water as you can and uh, I've actually worked with contractors. We'll put plastic down on the ground and we'll set up a negative air uh, pressure system and we're extracting the moisture through the plastic under negative air pressure. And do you and treat the soil when you're done? Go ahead, please. Do you treat the soil at all when you're done? Do you use lime or some other product? I've gotten away from lime because it's first, uh, even though we use it on the farm, we use it in the farm as a soil stabilizer and change in the pH uh, of the soil. So it, we're going to get better crops. Uh, that's different than trying to use lime in a crawl space. That's really hazardous. Uh, there is a court case here in Southern California where the gentleman, um, which handled his own sewage problem, put over 500 pounds of, uh, actually it was about 800 pounds of uh, lime underneath the building. And because his ventilation system was underneath there, a lot of that lime came through the ventilation system causing occupant health concerns. And, and uh, uh, it's not a good thing. Uh, I re don't like lime at all in crawl spaces. Uh, what I do like is trying to biodegrade the sewage that's now that you've got the ground sort of in a state where it's down to either less than muddy, it's just malleable where you can hopefully just put it in your hand and, and, and if you can put it into a ball, uh, that means you've got enough wastewater, hopefully out of that ground at the surface level uh, that you can start a remediation process. The one that I've done in the lab, and, and anybody can do this, uh, is take a soil, uh, such as in a uh, old fish tank, and uh, put some, uh, um, I wouldn't say sewage, but something like sewage, uh, unsanitary water from like a uh, dishwasher, uh, uh, you know, clothes washing machine, and allow that water to sit and saturate within that matrix uh, of the soil in that fish tank. And uh, try to extract that, use that as an example uh, that you, you're, it's a saturate, you, you, all this water that you put in there is now saturated within the soil. Now, how do you get rid of the water? Well, you can set up a dehumidification system, and how long will that take? Well, that's, that's one issue, but are you going to remove the biological components of that sewage <clears throat> in the short time? No. The easiest way to do that, what we found, is take something like Dawn or Joy, uh, or even Simple Green, and uh, respray that ground, and because of its surfactants, the, the biological matter will chelate and come to the surface of the soil where it can now be extracted, and then set up your drying system. You'll uh, what we we did we did a, a biological log study where we're able to go from about a log of eight or nine down to around a log of th probably five, 
uh, for soil. That was about the best that I, I could get it down to. And a log reduction uh, down to five uh, that you've probably removed as much as you can in the soil and then allow the soil to, to dry uh, under uh, a floor mat system, which is usually in this case like six mil poly and then extracting the moisture out of the poly uh, uh, through a hose and then ventilate it outside. Hmm. Have you ever had any experience using, uh, you know, bacterial type products? You know, for this, there, there are a lot of subtlest <laughs> products. And, uh, you know, we, we've done a number of these successfully where we actually uh, introduced hay uh, down into the crawl space and we wetted out the hay uh, with uh, bacterial products. And those were specialized products that were developed by companies that were involved in you know, soil remediation following oil spills and other types of, uh, you know, chemical incidents and, and, and so on and so forth. We had pretty good luck with that, actually. I, I don't disagree with it. Uh, I uh, There's a company in Texas that I, I uh, get um, my biologicals uh, from. Uh, they were also the, one of the mer uh, first companies that EPA approved in the Exxon Valdez uh, mm. oil spill. Um, to uh, absorb the oil with biologicals. And that was quite unusual because the government didn't know and, no, and the community didn't know uh, if the biological cultured enzymes were going to be able to work. And if they did work, were they going to be able to stop or are they going to take over the earth? Right. So uh, uh, that the cultured enzymes uh, were, did their job. Uh, they removed the oil. And once the, that particular cultured enzyme that was designed for the oil spill uh, did its job. It, it, the enzymes itself actually died. Yeah, they yeah. run out of food. Yeah. You know, they there's no, no food source for them to survive. And going into the sewage remediation world, uh, yes, that does work as well. There are several problems though that need to be carefully monitored. Uh, and I've done this with the one this manufacturer in Texas. Uh, that makes it um, has a laboratory and they design biological enzymes. Um, and what the concerns are is the pH, making sure that you have ideal pH and that the soil stays wet enough, long enough for the biological enzymes to eat all this biological matter. And so, uh, and sometimes you have to actually increase the amount of biological matter underneath there uh, for the enzymes to do their job. Because if, if it's not an ideal environment, uh, the, these enzymes, these cultured enzymes are very sensitive and they're going to die. And then they're not going to do their job. Patrick, before we've got to, well, let's stop and break for halftime. I've got another follow-up after that. But uh, we're going to stop and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds with Patrick Moffitt. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. 
association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. ACGIH, advancing the careers of professionals working in the environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety communities. Interested in defining their science at ACGIH.org. And I want to also make sure we thank the American Industrial Hygiene Association, our newest sponsor. They're coming out with their new tagline here. Their conference is actually, I think, coming right up around the corner, AIHCE. We'll be talking more about that in future shows. All right, let's get back to the interview with Patrick Moffat. Pat, before we go on to your near-death experience, I, I, I thought, you know, all this discussion of sewage made me think of a recent research paper that came out, and there have been several about the COVID-19 virus being present in sewage, you know, in, in feces. And I'm wondering, um, has that, change the way you um, perform your site assessments or your risk assessment on sewage-related projects? It sure has. Uh, in my, uh, I, for those that don't know, um, I have a um, five-hour training course on COVID. And part of that training course is talking about that when there is sewage waste matter now, uh, you cannot be guaranteed that the COVID virus is not part of that matrix from a biological point of view. And we as owners, managers, as well as me as a health and safety professional, uh, we have to take additional care of our employees to make sure that they don't come down with a disease or illness, uh, including like the one that bit me and uh, I ended up in the hospital and almost dying. And um, uh, so my safety procedures uh, were pretty strict before this, but now that, I've uh, experienced uh, this disease. Um, I'm uh, more aware not of just worker safety protection, which is like cleaning your hands, wearing the proper PPE. It's now as a owner manager, making sure that my employees are monitored for a period of time that they do not come down with a disease. And if they do, uh, what methods and procedures have you set in place as an owner uh, to make sure that is not COVID related or flu related or virus related in any way. Um, and, and that employee can be safely go to the next job and uh, go home safely, as well as setting up cleaning and uh, disinfection procedures for the employee, uh, either while doing work or after doing work. So, so the, the methodology has been the same on dealing with sewage. It's that the health and safety work practices have increased. Patrick, let's talk a little bit about your your near death experience there. First, um, I'm glad you glad you were able to pull through there, and uh, you've you've been doing this type of work for many many years. And um, I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about the where you where you feel you um, 
got whatever illness you had, uh, whether they were able to track down what type of bug got you, and then we'll have some follow-ups. Uh, yeah, I, this, you, you know, I, as an industrial hygienist for the past 40 years, I never thought that I was going to become part of the, the problem. I'm there to be one of the heroes, like you guys are, in doing good sewage remediation work and doing it safely. Uh, this particular day or week, um, the, in fact, going back to December, uh, I had a light case of the flu and just didn't get over it. So <clears throat> probably my immune system was shut down or depleted somewhat. And uh, getting into January when I was uh, working, um, that particular week, I did a couple uh, long-term death scene inspections, writing the protocols. It was really nasty smelling. So you go through a process a procedure for cleaning yourself, disinfecting yourself, being in those kind of environments. Um, I also did a couple uh, drug houses that week, uh, inspections, uh, and, and uh, both on the testing side as well as the procedure side of how to write a scope of work uh, for dealing either, uh, with everything from meth to marijuana, uh, THC, all those issues. And then there was a couple other jobs I did that week that I, I thought about what one was the one that probably got me really sick. And it was probably the sewage clear, uh, clearance job where I was using light gloves as I was doing my culture swabbing. But even after I took off my gloves and I took off my respirator, you're touching yourself. You're touching your respirator. Uh, and it was a half-face respirator. And you can imagine that whatever on the outside of that respirator, if you're just touching it with your hands when you're taking off your respirator, that could be the main point of contact, that you all of a sudden you're touching other items, including your own face, afterwards. So those are, those are issues that uh, I don't know which one exactly got me. But uh, one of them ended up end putting me in the hospital, and uh, the doctors did not know. Uh, and this is right at the time of the Super Bowl. And uh, I made sure that I stayed. Uh, I, I was sick, but I wanted to make sure that I was able to at least watch the Super Bowl sure. and then have my wife take me to the hospital. Uh, the doctors uh, immediately took me to emergency care, uh, did the blood draws, urine. Uh, and the results came back, at least temporarily, is that I was a very sick boy, uh, sufficient enough that uh, they determined my immune system was shutting down, my kidneys uh, uh, functions were not good, my liver functions were not good, and my body was uh, being taken over by a toxin. And what that toxin was, they had no idea. They almost went to a point of being quarantined, which I wasn't, not like what we talk about with COVID, but at least making sure that uh, I was carefully monitored and I didn't wasn't causing infection to anybody else. So I had my own room uh, uh, during the emergency part. And then uh, once I became stabilized, they put me up to a critical care unit. Uh, the results of the, the bacteria results ended up coming back E. coli. Uh, that means somehow probably on the sewage job is what caused me to uh, uh, touch either myself, my face, uh, uh, after I took off my gloves. And, um, uh, you would think that normally we, uh, that you take off your gloves and your hands are clean and, and the answer could be no. 
because you're touching your clothing, you're touching your face, you're touching possibly your shoes or boots, you're, uh, uh, you're taking off your respirator. Uh, all those potential contact points still could have fecal coliforms, and, uh, which one of them did. And um, I ended up, uh, I didn't have any punctures on my skin or anything like that from a tax trip. Uh, the main issue, it was probably ingestion. And uh, uh, it took like four to five days uh, to make me seriously sick that if, if I did not get to the hospital after the Super Bowl, uh, I wouldn't be here today. So thank God, because the doctors told my wife that uh, if they didn't get me to the hospital when they did, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. And how long were you in the hospital? Uh, they fed me intravenously for about four to five days, a big gigantic cocktail of all kinds of stuff, not knowing which uh, antibiotic was going to work with me or was any of them going to work with me. But uh, in doing blood draws, you know how the nurses are uh, and, the, and the blood technicians, every three to four hours they're coming in and doing blood draws to see how your uh, immune system or your body's responding to the um, antibiotics. And fortunately, whatever they gave me, um, it took about four days and then a couple days of recovery and then go home for a couple weeks and relax and don't overstress yourself and make sure that you're building your immune system up. So it was a greater part of a week that I was in the hospital. And you're back to normal now? hundred percent. hundred percent. The issue now is like all of us is dealing with the COVID virus. Um, because that also can shut down your immune system and uh, it also can cause you to die. It also can cause you, maybe even if you don't even know that you're sick, you can be carrier, a carrier of the virus and pass it on to your family and other members, your coworkers. So we're all being very cognizant about health and safety and working on any kind of job from this point forward. Is E. coli a robust organism, and how long can it remain viable? It depends on the environment. If it's just a dry surface, fecal coliforms can remain for three to four days. Uh, but if it's in a wet, damp environment, it can last for a month or longer. Mm -hmm. So it depends upon the, the conditions in the environment. If it's in a wet wall cavity, one of the reasons that we do cut out drywall when it's in contact, because the bacteria, the bacteria fecal coliforms uh, can survive for you know a greater part of a month. Uh, I know that there's been studies uh, done on this, and uh, what they've determined is that uh, in a wet environment, your coliforms can last a long time. Uh, in, in fact, E. coli is sort of unusual by itself, uh, is that it's a type of strain of bacteria uh, that will survive by communicating with its co-members, its other E. coli, and uh, it can survive. And uh, what it will do, it will actually join together to create what we call a biofilm. And all of a sudden, you've got a massive biofilm uh, there that's there to protect itself uh, from any invaders. Uh, so E. coli is quite an interesting strain. In fact, uh, I may have sent you a link to several studies, uh, science-based studies that talks about um, that it's a almost E. coli is a higher form of bacteria uh, that it knows how to survive 
better than other bacteria, and and he, and it it creates um, almost like a membership uh, and a family where it will survive as much as it can, as long as it can, under the right conditions. Then most of these times, it's up to right around 30 days. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's not still contaminants that should not be cleaned even after 30 days, such as on ceramic tile and flooring. Uh, but, uh, but in general, the fecal coliform should last for anywhere from two days on the dry condition all the way up to at least 30 plus days in a wet condition. Cliff, go ahead. What's a fomite? It's your headset. It's your glasses. It's your hat. Your phone. It's your computer. Uh, it's in, a fomite is a, what we call an inanimate object. In other words, even a, anything that's man-made is the easiest way to put it. Uh, whether it's my coffee cup, uh, whether it's a, my computer, my mouse, my monitor, um, it's a fomite. And, and bacteria and viruses can survive and live very well on fomites. And uh, that's the reason why when in a, where we're asking in these COVID coronavirus situations that you clean your computer, your keyboard, your mouse uh, several times uh, or at least once a day at a minimum. Um, with a, a product that will not harm the, uh, the material itself because uh, viruses can survive even though you cannot see them on inanimate objects. Uh, I've got a comment here from a listener. Uh, actually, Ed Light sent this in, Patrick. I think it's a good thing to bring up while we're talking a little bit about the COVID. Um, we should assume that SARS-CoV-2 is not only in sewage and backup overflows, but sewer gas releases through dry traps and vent leaks, cycling, recycling. Um, I know that in China they had some research that indicated that through vent leaps, uh, leaks on a stack pipe uh, in a, an apartment building, that that was a possible route for people to get COVID. I wonder if you had any comment on that. I do not. Uh, it makes sense, though. I, I didn't give it any thought. Uh, my presentation and my PowerPoints deal with as soon as you flush the toilet, the toilet aerosolizes the bacteria and viruses around that area. Uh, around that area could be four feet, six feet, eight feet away. And uh, it's an unsanitary condition where the COVID virus can uh, survive for, you know, two to three or four days. Depending upon what study that you're looking at, it can be all the way up to nine days. So uh, your bathroom can be a point of contact where you do become sick or your family members become sick because of the fecal coliforms uh, uh, that are aerosolized out of a toilet. I'm wondering if you've changed any of your practices, your, your decontamination practices, um, what you require of people doing water uh, sewage remediation when you're overseeing the project because of what you went through with uh, your recent illness? Yeah, uh, main thing is uh, uh, awareness, teaching uh, employees that yes, this is, even though you cannot see a bacteria or you cannot see the virus, uh, they're there. And some of them are more harmful than others. And uh, some of them, uh, uh, can get you seriously sick. The easiest way to avoid that is uh, awareness of the job site, uh, keeping yourself healthy, 
washing before you start the job or even putting on personal protective equipment and washing right after you take your personal protective equipment off, washing and making sure that your equipment is clean and sanitized. And so my methods for worker personal protection and equipment uh, cleaning uh, is gone up a lot, including what I'm gonna be putting in my future sewage remediation classes and my water damage classes. I'm gonna be putting a lot more awareness of what needs to be done uh, uh, before you start the job, during the job, while you're taking breaks, uh, while you're eating, before you put on your PPE again, after you take off your personal protective equipment, and before you go home. Uh, washing, washing, washing cannot be overstated in disinfecting. Hand washing, hand washing, face washing, any kind of exposed skin washing uh, is a must. Do you feel like if you'd had been a little more, uh, uh, a little, that if you had done more washing and cleaning, you might have avoided this illness? Certainly. In fact, that, that, that's the reason why I'm talking to um, uh, students, project managers, uh, building owners, uh, uh, us as restoration and remediation contractors, uh, and increase in the amount of washing, hand washing, using hand sanitizers. I mean, uh, a year ago, if you, would if you would ask me, did I have hand sanitizers in my car? I would say no. Do I have my hand sanitizers in my car today and will they always be around? Yes. So yeah. if you do not have water and you cannot wash your hands with water and soap for a minimum of what, 20 seconds or more? Uh, right. 20 seconds is actually the minimum. It's not the, the maximum requirement, it's the minimum requirement. And if you do not have uh, water and, and soap, um, definitely you need to be able to have your hand sanitizers to use multiple times a day. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Well, you know, one of the things uh, I was thinking about while you were talking, Patrick, is I was looking at Joe and looking at myself and, and looking at you. You know, none of us are spring chickens anymore. <laughs> and I suspect as we age, um, you know, as we age, our immune system, you know, begins to decline. And, you know, 11 years ago, we were all probably a lot healthier. And I know that all three of us dodged a bunch of bullets uh, uh, in, in things that we did because, you know, we did, you know, it was, you know, pre-AIDS, it was pre-asbestos, it was, you know, pre-any of this stuff. You know, we were all in the business and the trades and <laughs> we were doing these things that now we've learned are, are kind of hazardous. So I suspect that there's also an age issue as well, because, you know, you know, particularly with the morbidity with, with COVID, uh, you know, it seems that, you know, at least around Pennsylvania, I think the average uh, person was, what, 79 or something like that, Joe, I think that, you know, yeah. that's succumbed to it. So I suspect that may be part of it as well. You know, you're just not as healthy as you once were. I, by the way, uh, for, the, for the audience, uh, Cliff, in 19... 78, 79 taught me my first course. Hmm. And wow. he was a little younger back then. And uh, <laughs> had more hair too. <laughs> a little bit more hair. And, but he, he was, he's as good looking. Actually, he's gotten better looking over the years. Uh, <laughs> Maturity has helped you quite a bit, I can tell. Uh, but, uh, but it is a true statement that a lot of us that have been around, we're considered old dogs in the industry now. And that we're here to still survive to try to help and educate younger populations of people uh, that are getting in the cleaning and restoration business. Um, 
please learn from us. And it's just not me personally. Uh, people that you have respect for, uh, uh, whether it's either one of you gentlemen, Joe or Cliff, and many, many others that are in our industry, uh, please learn from them and then use them as mentors. Uh, I have been around both of these gentlemen for, uh, well, for Cliff, it's definitely over uh, 40 years. And uh, I, I can't, and Joe, I can't even remember how long, uh, maybe at least 25, 30 years that we've been in association in different uh, groups where we've uh, tried to share the best we can for the industry, where some of that information has actually ended up in standards whether it's the water damage standard, the fire damage standard, uh, and now we're trying to uh, write new standards. As, as you can imagine, uh, this world doesn't stop. New contaminants are coming about all the time. And in the cleaning and restoration business, now we're dealing with COVID. That if I talked to you about four months ago about the COVID virus, you would not even have an understanding of what I just said. Today, uh, it's part of our normal vocabulary. And in all our cleaning and restoration practices, um, uh, taking a better awareness of our environment and then making sure that our workers and our uh, ourself are, are clean and sanitary. Um, and you know, I don't want you to get to where I was at. I, um, uh, you're, when you're in a hospital bed, you go, well, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Because I never saw it. You cannot see a virus. Uh, you cannot see the bacteria. I didn't know that E. coli was going to impact or infect my health. And uh, even even though I felt that the, the contractor or the two jobs I was on during that small period of time were fairly clean and I was just there to do the clearance testing, something was there that bit me and eventually shut me down. And uh, if it wasn't for antibiotics and people caring for me, um, um, it would be a very sad day because I wouldn't be here. And I'm going to be here for a lot longer. And I know that <laughs> gentlemen will be as well. And uh, you're going to have many more IQ radio programs. And we're all going to learn from you. Well, thanks, Patrick. Hey, there is one more. I, I think this is an interesting question from a listener. In your estimate, how long will the COVID-19 be around with us? Forever. The COVID-19 is just the disease. Uh, the coronavirus has been around in soil and some of that soil impacts animal health and animals have been passing it on, certain animals have been passing it on between each other. And uh, it did not pass on to the human vector until probably uh, what we figured around December. And then it got passed from one person to the next and then um, it ended up going around the world, uh, but uh, the strain of COVID uh, the, uh, is going to um, uh, be, it's being studied by over 100 uh, uh, different universities and medical labs worldwide uh, so we can get a vaccination. But even when you do get the vaccination, doesn't mean that the next strain is not going to uh, impact you. So right. there will always be a new strain, uh, usually of the coronavirus now, of the SARS virus, and uh, um, there will be future breakouts. So our whole world is uh, upside down, and we've learned a lot more uh, this time than we did when the uh, pre uh, previous uh, influenza uh, breakout occurred uh, a couple of years ago. And now this one has really become worldwide as a pandemic. 
and uh, there will be other ones in the future. So we need to learn from this one, uh, especially as soon as we get a, a, a an antibiotic that's going to uh, that's going to be able to work with us and uh, protect our immune system. A vaccination. Cliff, let me turn it over to you for a final thought. Uh, th thanks, Joe. Um, Patrick, um, I want to acknowledge the courage that it took you to go public with this because I think a lot of people wouldn't have done it. And, um, you know, I think the whole time I've known you, uh, you know, it was, it's always been about doing the right thing and you can continue to do it. And, uh, you know, I highly respect you for doing it. And I think on behalf of the industry, uh, we certainly appreciate because, uh, you know, this will, a lot of people listen to the show and I think this is going to make people uh, change and upgrade what they do. And, you know, we're going to prevent some injury and, and hopefully uh, prevent worse than that. So again, I thank you. Well, thank you. Semper, Semper Fi, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it's important to be a Marine. Yeah. But uh, I have a responsibility to the industry. It's just not a responsibility to myself uh, in protecting myself. It's also to you. Because as I'm sitting in that hospital bed, I'm going, well, hey, listen, this is a lesson learned. But uh, how many other students that have come to me during my classes over the year and said, hey, listen, I've been in, I was infected with this. I was infected with that. Yep. Uh, uh, you know, a coworker was, uh, this other guy died. We don't know if it's work related or not. Um, but we changed our, our work procedures. Um, and I never thought it would bite me. And now I have a responsibility I felt of sharing this with the industry that, uh, uh, these things that we can't see such as bacteria and viruses are, are serious. Uh, and now with the COVID break breakout, uh, and the pandemic, uh, we really have to, uh, have a, better respect for our own personal health and then how we can, if we're impacted or infected, uh, then what does that mean to us as well as our family? So that's a big, big procedure as well as keeping everything clean that's around us. Uh, I, I mentioned in my uh, article that I published is that you're leaving a sewage contaminated job, make sure that you're leaving the contamination at the job and you're not taking it home with you, including even on your shoes. So that's, that's a big thing that I, I learned, um, that even our shoes uh, can carry a lot of these viruses and bacteria and bring them right back to our own home. We didn't realize it. Patrick, I think that's a good way to leave it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It, I, it's, I can't believe it's been 11 years, but uh, time flies when you're having fun, I guess. <laughs> well, I look forward to the next 11 years. Yes, sir. And I hope we get you back well before 11 years from now. This is Radio Joe saying thanks to Patrick Moffitt. Uh, great job, Pat. And I, I really appreciate you getting your message out to the industry. Thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. By the way, we'll be uh, off next week. I'll be kind of swamped next week. We're doing our indoor environmentalist course and uh, mold remediation courses, and we've, we've put them online now, so we're doing them through the Blackboard with Greenville Technical College. Two weeks from now, we've got Bill Bonfleth. Um, he is the past president of ASHRAE, but he's also the chair of the ASHRAE task force on COVID, uh, on coronavirus, so we're going to have a great show. Come back and join us two weeks today for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus.
For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.